0: Welcome to another episode of the Pirate Monk Podcast. I don't even know what number we're up to. I don't remember, Aaron. Do you know offhand? I think
1: uh, close to 200 or 110, 200 and 210. I don't know.
0: I don't know. We've been doing this for a while, although not as frequently recently as one would hope. But we're back. We're back. I'm your host, Nate Larkin, here in uh, lovely, verdant Franklin, Tennessee. Uh, joined, of course, by our co-host with the most, the, uh, uh, the what am I going to say? The inimitable Aaron <laughs> Porter. Uh, hey, we're a
1: little bit verdant ourselves here after a few sprinkles last month. It's nice to have some verdiosity.
0: <laughs> All right. And the smoke is cleared. You can actually uh, see now. Uh, we
1: we weren't as smoky as your friends in Ojai.
0: Yeah. Okay.
1: But they're they're telling me that because it hasn't rained since then, every time the wind picks up, it blows ash around, and they're breathing in all kinds of stuff.
0: Oh my. So. Oh my.
1: It it goes on.
0: You know, I was heartbroken to see a couple of weeks ago the mudslides in Montecito, because Allie and I uh-huh. have wonderful memories of Montecito that that wealthy enclave outside of Saint. Santa Barbara, where we, we spent a week. You, you came down to visit us there a few years ago. Yes.
1: Yeah, and, and that's saying something when you say it's the wealthy enclave outside of Santa Barbara. Yeah, yeah. As yeah. if it doesn't cost a fortune, as if Santa Barbara itself is not a wealthy enclave. They need another yeah. uh, little society of actually rich people outside.
0: And it, isn't that proof that we can never insulate ourselves from chaos?
1: Yes. Right? Absolutely.
0: Uh, life can change in an instant. Whether it is a mountain of mud sliding into our multi-million-dollar house and maybe smothering us, or the car that crosses the center line, or the news from a spouse that you never thought you'd get, or the diagnosis that comes out of nowhere. This is a depressing way to start a, a podcast, but it it is true. <laughs> but, you know, it is you know, true, what, is it not?
1: Yeah one of my one of my favorite scenes in a movie was in the movie Instinct with. Uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. and Anthony Hopkins. Mm-hmm. And in that scene, you can you can YouTube it and just say instinct, Cuba Gooding Jr., Anthony Hopkins interview, and it usually comes up. But he – Anthony Hopkins is a crazy old man in this, crazy doctor, and uh, Cuba Gooding Jr. is a psychiatrist. And in the scene, he basically threatens his life and says – I'm going to kill you unless you tell me what I've taken from you. And he's got duct tape over Cuba's mouth, and he gives him like a crayon and a piece of paper. And the first thing he writes down is his freedom. And Anthony Mm -hmm. Hopkins sweeps that away and says, freedom, you think you are free? Everything in your life is calculated. You know you're going to go to the gym at the end of the day, and you're going to be a slave to those machines. There's nothing in your life that's free. Mm -hmm. Try again. And he writes down his control. He writes down control. Mm -hmm. What have I taken from you? What have you lost? Control. And he throws that piece of paper away and says, control, I could have done this at any time. You were never in control.
0: Mm -hmm.
1: And he says, one more try or I'm going to kill you. And finally, he writes down what he lost, what had been taken, his illusions. Ooh. And it's just brilliant that he never had the freedom he thought he did. He never had the control. Those were all just his illusions. And when we lose our illusions, then we start to find freedom.
0: Yeah, yeah. Wow. You know, and isn't that true in recovery? A lot of us, uh, you know, stayed, we we just hovered outside the door of recovery. Uh, we didn't want to go in because it felt like we would lose our freedom if we surrendered to recovery, to the program, if we got honest. We were under the illusion that we were actually free in our compulsive behavior when actually freedom was inside the room. Uh, yeah. And uh, and then one of the first things we learned when we got inside was uh, that our life was unmanageable, uh, that we were powerless and our life had become unmanageable. And here we thought we had all kinds of power and we thought we were managing things. And we had to before we could even really begin the road to recovery, we had to come to terms with the fact that we were being managed. We really weren't managing anything and we were not in control. And uh, we were trying to control things that are beyond control. And the frustration that is produced by that fruitless exercise was driving our crazy behavior. Isn't that insane? So,
1: so isn't this just a bad definition of freedom? That to, to most people, the definition of freedom is to be able to do whatever you want. Yeah. Where where Scripture says you're a slave to whatever's mastered you. Right. right. Yeah. Whatever. Sure. Sure. So real freedom is not about not being controlled. Real freedom's about finding the best master.
0: Mm, isn't that true? So,
1: yeah, freedom. Freedom in Christ is that He no longer. I'm not called a slave. I'm called a friend. Yeah. I'm called a son, and so that's the master that gives me freedom. But it's not that I'm not under a master.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: I, yeah. I will always be. And yeah. even the the anarchist is just mastered by their own uh, immediate desires of their own minds and flesh. Right. Yeah. To so yeah. not be controlled by anybody's, to be controlled by your own instinct. Yeah. So.
0: Wow. This got, this got deep fast. This it, was our it. banter. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it's about time to play You Gotta Serve Somebody. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. You gotta serve somebody. Uh, well, so
1: you had some adventures in uh, Colorado. Uh, I want to hear about I
0: it. I did. This was fantastic. It was great. Uh, uh, you know, I took five days away. I took five days away from life. I took five days away from the Samson Society and... Although I've really been enjoying this new season in Samson with the virtual meetings, and up until the time I left, I was in a virtual meeting every day. Maybe that's why I've gone deep early. I've already been in a meeting this morning, <laughs> uh, but took five days off Samson, five days away from home and the routine here, and uh, the wife I love. We drive each other crazy and and save each other's sanity all at the same time. So five days away from that, five days away from my business, actually. Did this like painful, impossible thing, and handed it to my son for five days, and he did a spectacular job. I
1: was going to say, I, I I didn't even occur to me why I received a report uh, back from your son. Yeah, I just went, well, good for him. Yeah. he's, he's stepping up.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, I finally let him do it, and <laughs> nice. uh, and and went off for five days with brothers in Colorado to the uh, to Michael Cusick's uh surfing for God or restoring the soul uh intensive weekend intensive
1: now this was an intensive there were only how many people like there were tw- twenty five participants
0: twenty five participants, and fifteen staff crazy, so I was one of the staff I was the oldest guy on staff this really? is a, this is another strange adjustment for me I'm getting old so fast and i I still think like i'm maybe middle-aged or very often the youngest guy in the room. And everybody's looking at me like the sage, like the grandpa, right? <laughs> uh, so I was the oldest guy on staff and I was paired during the group time with the youngest guy on staff, a very, uh, uh, gifted, uh, therapist, uh, now based in Atlanta, a guy named Kendall Flo. Uh, we got along great and we worked with six guys during the group time and, um, I cannot divulge all the details of the intensive. It it, it is an experiential weekend in some ways similar to the new Adam weekend that you're a part of. So that's got to be for the sake of future participants uh, shrouded in mystery. I'm not going to disclose a lot of what's going on. Uh but there so was, was also it, Did,
1: did mm-hmm. you find yourself recharged or drained after that
0: experience? That's a long time to yeah. be in it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Both. Both. I mean, I, I definitely was recharged and it was a demanding, exhausting, intensive time. Uh but I've been uh You know, I brought home insights and lessons from the week that I've been putting into practice since I got back to Franklin. And frankly, it's already, you know, paying dividends here in my marriage. Uh, It's got me thinking in uh, new ways. So uh, let me do this. Uh, This doesn't ruin the weekend. Uh, I will uh, at various points throughout the weekend, Michael presented some lessons. Uh, and there were two talks about wounds, one about wounds of presence and one about wounds of absence. So wounds of presence are those things that are done to us. Right.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And Michael said it's, it's strange that about 80 percent of the guys who come to him for therapy, when they're filling out the 15 page intake questionnaire and they come to the part where they're going to list their wounds from childhood, they just draw a line through it and write not applicable.
1: Not applicable. Yeah.
0: Well, sure. I mean, I was raised by loving parents in an ideal Christian home, and I was never sexually abused. And so, you know, my behavior truly is mysterious, uh, baffling, and uh, probably more proof that I'm somehow depraved that that somebody doing things as bad as the things I'm doing could have come from such a good family. That's a very common story. I hear that a lot. And, prob- and I would have said the same thing 20 years ago. I'm raised in a Christian home, never sexually abused. Why am I a freaking idiot around sexual behavior? So, um, so he said, uh, you know, wounds of presence are uh, the things that are done to us that shouldn't have been, are very easy to spot. But wounds of absence, things that we should have received that we didn't get, those are harder to see. But their absence can be equally devastating in the long run mm. so he uh, what he did was he built a pyramid out of wooden blocks uh, and he did it systematically over the course of the talk four blocks on the bottom then three then two then one at the top and so starting at the bottom with the first block he said he said you know there there are some things that you need in about the first four years of your life this really these formative years when you are forming your map of reality your identity you're, you're making neural connections that are going to be with you for the rest of your You're building a map now that's going to serve you for the rest of your life. Not that it can't be changed but this is foundational, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so he said, the first thing you need is you need to be seen and he put the first block down. So uh, in other words, uh, in order for you to receive the message that you have significance, that you matter, that you have weight in the world, uh, you need to be noticed by caregivers, right? You need somebody to look in your face and mirror what you do. And uh, and we know from those horrific stories of the uh, you know warehouse orphanages in Eastern Europe that kids that weren't seen, that were just left abandoned you know, for long stretches of time— uh, we're not able to develop a core identity, right? So you need to be seen. And of course, while he's talking, I'm always referencing my own story. And I'm thinking, well, hell, I was the first child, uh, only the second grandchild, the first child my parents had, a very attentive parents. I was seen. I got that one. I'm feeling right. pretty good, right? <laughs> right. He goes, uh, the next block, He put, the next thing you need, and he puts another block down. He says, you need to be soothed. So he said, you know, before you acquire language, you still have needs. We all have needs. And the only way to communicate your needs is by crying. So when you're hungry or when you're cold or when you're hurting or when you're afraid or when you're overtired or whatever, you're, the only way to communicate that is to cry. And when, that, when you cry, what you need is for someone to be attentive, to be attentive to your discomfort and to comfort you to do what it takes to soothe you. And all of a sudden I thought, holy crap. I do remember that my father's parenting philosophy was you never pick up a crying child because that just rewards the child for crying. Hmm. And he actually would sometimes boast about the fact that he gave me my first spanking when I was six weeks old because because I wouldn't stop crying. Now my dad was a good man. He was, and he cared about me. But that was the parenting philosophy that children are seen and not heard, you know. And, and and I was so convinced of the validity of that philosophy that I tried to do it in our home when Allie and I started having kids. Fortunately, yeah. Allie was so maternal, yeah, <laughs> she's and, <not>. and protective. <laughs> she's that,
1: never left a crying baby, hers or
0: otherwise, yeah.
1: unattended to. I'm sure she,
0: she did it a few times. And then she just couldn't take it anymore. And she overruled me on, and I'm so grateful. And my kids are the better for it, right? Mm -hmm. But um, if you're not soothed, okay, so, and let's get a little graphic here. What is more soothing, self-soothing than masturbation? Come on. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: Uh, If you've got a deficit there. All right. Anyway, so you need to be safe or seen. You need to be soothed. The next one is you need to be safe. Um, A child is always attentive to the emotional atmosphere of his environment. So if there's tension in the house where you're raised, you're going to sense it. And it makes you anxious. You pick up on the anxiety. If there's yelling and screaming, certainly. Uh, Or if there is just tumultuous change, it isn't stable. You never know what's going to happen, right? You feel unsafe. Uh, We need stability. And uh, safety, he said, now, if we have those three, if we're seen, soothed and safe, then we can get that fourth block, which he says is secure attachment. Now, if we don't, if we're severely deprived, we may never be able to attach at all. And that true, there's a small number of people who are, it's tragic. They just can never attach. Mm -hmm. Most of us will attach, but our attachment will be a paired in some way. Um, so he, he mentioned two kinds of impaired attachment. I've learned since that there are some other ways that we could look at it, but he said, uh, your attachment might be anxious. In other words, you attach, but you are always expecting and anticipating rejection. Hmm. You can see rejection coming from a mile away and you're, and you are always protecting yourself from it.
1: Right. Always guarded in your interaction. Right.
0: So that is an impaired attachment, an anxious attachment. Or, he said, uh, you can have an avoidant attachment. And man, I saw myself all over this. Uh, In this mode, you attach, but you have internalized the message that um, in order to be worthy of attachment, you need not to have any needs. Hmm. So you deny your needs. You don't ask for anything. You don't allow yourself to be vulnerable. You might be great at meeting the other needs of other people, and that may help to bolster your self-esteem, but you cannot attach with vulnerability because your uh, mode of attachment is avoidant. And you're
1: convinced you'll never be soothed, so you have to take care of your own soothing.
0: Right! Which goes back to to what Patrick Carnes has said from his research about one of the four core beliefs of all sex addicts is we all believe that we cannot rely on anybody else to meet our needs. Hmm. And when I began therapy here just uh, just a a few months ago in preparation for the long walk with my daughter, you know, the first question that my therapist asked me, I couldn't answer. The first question is, what do you need? Now, here's where I I started, you know, sitting there, I started to think back years ago, 12, 15 years ago, you know, uh, 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 on a Christmas when we didn't have any money, Allie gave me a a glass boot that she had filled with handwritten coupons for back rubs and foot rubs and things like that. I never redeemed a single coupon. Mm. Wow. Now she began putting the boot where I could see it. Um, I never, rede- she started to hint. I still didn't do it. As the years went by, occasionally she would reference it in tearful moments. And you never, you don't care about me. You never redeemed one of those coupons. I could rub her back forever. I could give her foot rubs while we watched two or three shows. So
1: wait, wait, wait. So you said that she said you don't care about me because you didn't let me serve you.
0: Yes! Yes! So after one she brought this up in 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 a fight, you know, I don't know, a few months ago, maybe a year ago, and I finally I went looking for the damn boot and I couldn't find it. <laughs> Cuz I was finally, you know, I was finally going to re- redeem a coupon. And I couldn't find it. I said, "Do you know where that boot is?" She said, "Yeah, I couldn't take it anymore. I threw it away."
1: Uh how so, and that that was symbolic to the her giving up peace.
0: Yes. She read rejection. That thing was so painful. It triggered her anxious attachment. My avoidant attachment triggered her anxious attachment. So actually, I got back from this. Uh, one of the changes I made, when I got back from this intensive. I did something that I haven't done in 40 years. Allie and I will be married 40 years in May. I asked her for a back rub, a back scratch. Now, she was happy to do it. She loved doing it. And I got to tell you, it felt fantastic. It was almost as good as sex, frankly.
1: Um, That's but- how you know you are getting older. Nate. <laughs> but anyways, that was an aside.
0: No, no, no. <laughs> you, know, you know, when I think about it, I know what you mean. Well, hell, the years back when I used to go for, quote, massages, unquote, the ones mm-hmm. that ended with a happy ending or, or, or more. This is the truth, Aaron. I hated for the hap- I hated for the happy ending to come although I was determined I was going to get it. My favorite part of the experience was the back rub, the touching, the soothing. That's what I went for. Wow. I wouldn't ask my wife for it. But I'd pay somebody else.
1: Well, and that's that's the safer part. Yeah. They they're not serving you, they owe you. Based yeah. on uh, an, an agreed financial arrangement, sure, and with your wife, it. it. So here, I want to, I want to get your thoughts on this. Uh, as you were talking, I was thinking about a friend of mine that uh, once went to, went to counseling, and things were going well until the counselor at one point said, "Well, you know, uh, the." The bottom line thing you're struggling with here is is you're you're very needy, mm-hmm. and that oh. hurt him so badly, it made yeah. him so upset that yeah. he didn't want to go anymore. Right, sure. And I, I remember when I first heard that, I I really felt for him yeah. because he was a he was a strong guy, he's a tough guy, and all that kind of stuff. And then over the years, I reflected on that and and talked with him years later about it. That what a what a tragic. We're all incredibly needy. We're supposed to be needy. If we weren't needy, we would never have connection and relationships. Yes. And And we are
0: shamed for being needy, for having needs
1: yeah so what's and I think it's different reasons for each of us yeah. uh, like for me it comes to more of a control thing. if I need you, you can control me. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think for you it goes to more of a a shame. this shows that I'm not as strong or I'm not worthy of love if I'm needy. Mm-hmm. I think it goes to different places for us, but I think almost all of us have this nope don't be needy deal going on. so where uh, that obviously doesn't come from scripture. No. Uh, all of the gospel is built on our need. That's yeah, that's exactly. what the story of redemption's about. Yeah. So where where does it come from? Why and how do we even start to let go of that and appropriately express our need to other people?
0: Yeah. You know, it was dramatic during the course of this uh talk that Michael gave. You know, he completed the pyramid, you know, three blocks Representing childhood and our needs there and two blocks representing adolescence and our needs there and then finally topped with a single block when now we're in adulthood and we are uh, capable of a healthy uh, connection, sexual connection with a partner um, the place where we all want to be and the place where we we have not arrived, right? And he says, so And then he said, so what happens if one of your fundamental needs wasn't met? And he pushed one of those bottom blocks out. And when he did, the whole pyramid collapsed. Um, During the group time, we went deep Early And we went deep long and when there were powerful psychodramatic ways to get there, there were cognitive ways to get there, but it was very much feeling based. It was a safe environment. And what we were able to do during that group experience is the same kind of thing that I see happen over time in Samson relationships, in Silas relationships as groups mature and grow was we were able to admit our need and meet one another's needs. There was a lot of feedback. Here was the value of feedback. Made me wonder. Uh, I like it when, uh, frankly, some of these older and more mature Samson groups begin to incorporate a meeting format that allows some feedback. Uh, so during group time, we were able to speak need, and then others were able to meet need. And and guys were able to experience there some of the soothing they should have gotten long ago. They were seen in an empathetic and compassionate and dignified and respectful way in a way they'd never been seen before. Mm -hmm. And they were in an environment that was safer than one they'd ever experienced. And as a result, um, I think everybody was, you know, came out wiser, a little more stable, a little stronger and a little less afraid now to start expressing need that's the hardest thing for me to do Aaron mm-hmm. is to express my need to be a needy person yeah and yet that is the that is the first requirement of recovery or really growth in Christ yeah yeah we say it in the path i abandon self help and yeah, I know we read it every week, uh, and I've you know I'm, my fingers are being pried off of self help, but I honestly can't say that I've abandoned it yet.
1: <laughs> you you abandon it today?
0: Yeah, exactly.
1: I at a at a pract- I'm I'm hearing you talk about these guys that have come, or even guys in Samson that get to feel heard, and maybe haven't felt heard for a long time. Yeah. And a a lot of that's built on there's a structure in place. There's a structure and a protocol.
0: Yeah. So it
1: feels safe. There's safety in that. Yeah. Yeah. But then I take it to the next level and think, well, wait, in my marriage, there isn't a structure or protocol that's been accepted by, there's only two parties. And yet many times we haven't worked that out. (laughs) Yeah. So there, you know, you kind of wonder, where do I even start fitting that in? And then to realize how I in my life in the past have made – kind of twisted my needs into – okay, take sex, for instance. Mm -hmm. If, to me, my wife initiating some kind of encounter or touch Mm -hmm. was proof that she desired me and or loved me. Yeah. So – if I had to ask right. or say, hey, I want to have sex or anything like that, number one, that goes in the needy category. Right. And number two, it proves she didn't want to, and right. so I'm not desirable. And so it would be, okay, I'm not going to say anything until she comes to me. Well, yeah. I'm married to a person that that's not like foremost on her mind. Right, sure. However, if I was... You know, if I wanted some type of food and said, hey, I don't know, want want to do Mexican tonight, and she said, oh, yeah, I hadn't thought about Mexican, but that sounds good, I would believe her. Right. It's okay to have a conversation and that her desire would be legitimate. Yeah. But somehow when it came to intimacy, because of the vulnerability of that, I wouldn't allow that for her. That I couldn't bring up intimacy, and if she said like, oh, yeah, that sounds good, no. It was my idea, so it doesn't sound good to you. And it became a weird and stupid game with which I withheld from myself the gift that my wife might have been very willing and desirous to give. But instead, I created a narrative that isolated myself from her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so that's kind of what I mean when I say there's no... We didn't talk about it. These things just happened. Yeah. And whereas we see the quick safety and the quick healing that comes in these groups when a structure is set, simple structures can be set in my marriage that help me not act like an idiot. Yeah. It's doing doing those types of things that make no sense at all. Yeah, yeah. So I, I don't know. I was just considering how that can translate into a husband and wife relationship.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm still uh, becoming aware and and conscious of the kind of the the ripple effect of my unwillingness to um, express a need and to ask my wife to help me. The message I sent to her was that um, I disempowered her every day. I am the I am the competent person in this relationship. You are the incompetent person in this relationship, and uh, that is a devastating message to get every day for forty years.
1: Now that's that's not what you meant to send her. No, it is not. So, so what what did you feel like you would lose if you let her participate? Like, what were you guarding in that?
0: Um, I wanted connection. And in my impaired view of attachment, if I admitted need, I would not be worthy of connection.
1: Wow. And yet it was clear that by not admitting your need, you just never got to connect. Right. You kept yourself from connection.
0: Right. So it's, it's a horrible cycle. Yes, it is. Now, you know, thankfully, we were still, you know, Ali and I, you know, we laugh and say that, you know, we're still together because we both have, you know, we have, we have compatible intimacy disorders. (laughs) (laughs) But, 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 you know, we're coming to realize it's amazing to me how much deeper our conversations have gone and how really how much closer our connection has become just in the few weeks since I. I got back from this latest experience. It's not the first time that we've found a new plateau, but it's uh, real encouraging to experience another one. Mm.
1: Yeah. Well, that is very cool. Well, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we have a couple questions from uh, friends abroad across the country, and we're going to address those questions uh, when we come back here on the Pirate Monk podcast. It's
0: easy to be wise.
1: These things by your brains
0: I sank into Eden with you Alone in the church by and by i read to you here, save your eyes
1: You'll need them, your boat is at sea Your anchor is out, you've been swept
0: away Greatest of teachers won't hesitate to leave you there. We are back in the Pirate Monk Podcast. Well, that wasn't uh, our typical nonsensical, uh, light-hearted banter, but it was a great conversation there to open the show, Aaron.
1: Yes, and and the weather wasn't mentioned. Well, well, kind of in the beginning. Okay, yeah, climate again. Climate. climate.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Hey, uh, Aaron. I understand. I have not yet been in a virtual meeting with you, but I understand you, you, you graced a, a, a virtual meeting.
1: Yeah, it was great. Uh, they're all, all these early morning ones for you guys are uh, very, very early morning ones for us yeah. California
0: guys. I know. We got guys getting up at five o'clock in the morning to attend these meetings. And look, uh, you are fully authorized, Aaron, to start a virtual meeting at a time that fits your schedule. In I fact, know. here's here here's one thing. Uh, we got some guys now more and more expressing interest in starting a pastors, a, a minute a pastors meeting. And uh, I think Tom mentioned it in the latest edition of No Bull Bullets. Actually, the first edition of No Bull Bullets that went out via email yesterday. So anyway, just to put that in your ear, maybe we can do Pastor Pirates virtually, Aaron.
1: Yes, at I, a time I that fits a, your schedule. I am excited to get that rolling, and yeah. uh, so. So, we'll, but tell we'll me about your
0: experience in the in the early morning virtual meeting.
1: Yeah, uh, I, I believe it was Jeremy it was his first time uh, leading, so yeah. it, it was it was good. He was kind of working out how to do it. I was glad Tom Mocha was there to kind of help it. But uh, yeah, I just love that it's it's real connection. Yeah,
0: uh, You oh, know,
1: yeah. I, I, I will absolutely say it's not as good as sitting face-to-face with people, just like staring at you on my screen right now. It's uh-huh. not as good as sitting in that office of yours uh, yeah. talking to you. But uh, it— I think it's it, damn
0: close. Pers- I was
1: going to say that it is not diminished nearly so much as one might think. You yeah, know, you're, yeah. you're seeing people's faces. If you have a computer, like— your face right now is not that much smaller than it would be in real life. You're sitting yeah. here. I can yeah I yeah. see your nonverbal communication. It's real. So uh, I really enjoyed it and I thought it was such a nice way to start um my day. Uh it, it just kinda set things on a good no. path. I I am excited for evening ones where we can add a virtual meeting after the meeting. We've made little comments about a virtual pub with some Irish music in the background, and you know oh, people people wouldn't that be go. incredible yeah we we gotta do it because I wanted to get to know a couple of the guys a little more. They had talked about things I wanted to hear more about um and when the meeting ended, we all left and didn't yeah, have a meeting after the meeting to go to. I know, I know, so I know. we we got to work on that. But uh, the meeting itself was just really good. And at the end, I asked if anyone had some questions they wanted brought up. And I have two of them. So today, instead of listener mail, uh, we're going to do some questions from a virtual meeting. Oh, cool. So the first one is from our friend Jeremy, who asks this. How much mental energy should be put towards recovery? Sometimes the best thing is doing things that don't have anything to do with it. But prayer and meditation and things that are good uh, for recovery often lead back into those thoughts. So the question is how much mental energy is appropriate to put towards recovery? And where's the line where it becomes unhelpful? And is this, I think I'll add this. How long should that be central in your life? And is there a point where it should kind of get back to a different norm?
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, I, I, can, I can give my two cents. I don't know that I have the, you know, the answer to every question. But um, I do think that in the beginning, you know, we've, we've, we've been trapped in obsessive behavior. And um, the mistake a lot of us made, the mistake I made, was try to think my way out of addiction, and I could never do that. Eventually, my brain would circle back into fall into familiar ruts, and then I'd fall into the because I'm I'm, I'm trying I'm doing as I often say irrational things for non-rational reasons, and trying to solve the problem by rational means. Mm, yeah, yeah. Um, There is some solo work that needs to be done in early recovery. Um, uh, But actually, most of the work in early recovery needs to be done in community. That's why it's important to go to meetings. That's why in standard 12-step recovery, there is, you know, a, 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 a general expectation in the beginning. It's a great practice to do 90 meetings in 90 days. It's another th- another, another uh, a good reason to have virtual meetings, by the way, because even if you're in a town where there's only one meeting a week by going online, you can now meet with other people. And it's important to start having conversations rather than running these issues around, around and around in your head to have those conversations with uh, a silas, not necessarily an expert, but somebody other than you. Uh, now, You know, it's interesting. Uh, I heard that in another program, gosh, I forget which one it was, another 12-step program, um, they have a rule when you're doing step work. And step work is kind of like the private, the personal homework that you're going to do under the direction of a Silas or a sponsor, where you're going to start uh, looking at the course and consequences of your attempts to live apart from God. Do that course and consequences work. Uh, or if we're talking, if you're following what I describe in the Walking Lessons podcast, uh, you know, a, a step one and step four work when you're doing the fearless moral inventory. Um, in this program, they have a rule. You're only allowed to do step work for 30 minutes a day.
1: Mm, interesting. What What happens after 30 minutes in their, their philosophy?
0: Their philosophy is, uh, there are a couple of reasons. One. You'll try to rush it, and you'll try to get, you'll try to just do the whole program. I mean, I, I tried to set the land speed record for recovery, that did not work. Right? <laughs>
1: uh
0: huh. Uh huh. It takes time, right. and understand that uh, when you're doing this work, you are by yourself, and this is your own best thinking. And uh, the deeper you go into those woods the more likely you're going to fall into a pit. (laughs) Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And and so it's important to do the work, but to do it in pieces and then to be sharing that work, being in conversation with other people. Because actually we've been trying to save ourselves for a very long time. And we can bring that determined effort, that self effort, that self help thing, where we're just going to push everything else away, and by God, we're going to crush it, we're going to get it done. And really, we're just repeating an old pattern.
1: Right. So basically we're saying, oh, good— Samson or a 12 step group. Now I have the tool by which I can dig my way out of this hole, right. which is the exact same thinking for every other book that was found, every other right. sermon that was heard. And yeah. so 12 step or Samson can just be the next dumb idea that you're yeah. going to delude
0: yourself with. A, p- a big part of it is uh, here's what it is we have to learn to be comfortable in process. One of the reasons that some of us get really obsessive in the front end is we're still so covered in shame and we feel so broken. And in order to be okay, in order to be okay with God and be able to look the world in the eye, we have to fix this shit and fix it now. Um, This is where it's really helpful to be a Christian uh, and to internalize the truth of the gospel that really we live in the world of the already and the not yet. That we are already complete in Christ. That God's affection for us is complete and uh, unqualified. And that he's never going to love us more than he loves us right now. uh, And never going to love us any less. And we have to be comfortable with process. And the fact that healing, the standard pattern of healing, whether we're talking about physical healing or spiritual healing, healing is a progressive thing. We're talking about healing our brain. We're talking about creating new neural pathways that takes time. It doesn't happen over It doesn't happen overnight. So we have to be patient. We have to really uh, feed ourselves from the bread and wine of the gospel. It's one of the reasons why it's important to stay connected with the body of Christ and to have daily conversations with other believers so that we don't panic and think we've got to fix it now. Um, So, yeah, that that uh, it's 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 that's another reason to to uh, to take our time in early recovery. So, yes, we're going to develop a new discipline, but some of that discipline is not going to be mental at all. Some of it is going to be physical self-care. There is going to be a big dividend uh, from uh, caring for your physical body because you are an embodied spirit. And your physical health has spiritual implications. You want to strengthen yourself for this journey? Actually, part of recovery is getting enough sleep, eating a de- eating uh, in a more sensible way, getting some daily exercise. And that all should go into the recovery basket. Mm. Those are things that you probably have sacrificed for the addiction. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And the other thing that I would add to all of that is—I'm trying to figure out how to say this in a, in a less negative way—so much of the Christian experience is more based on the Pharisaic philosophies than the mm-hmm. gospel truth. Yeah. In other words, when we go to church, we're often told, here's— Three more things to do. Here's four more things Ugh. to do, and that's the way Pharisees talk. Now yeah. it's not that those things that are brought up at church are bad, right? Just as many of the things the the Pharisees said weren't bad. Jesus wasn't just against Pharisees, mm-hmm. um, but the the gospel piece, the good news, is the finished work of Jesus being enough. For all the broken pieces and all the relationships in my life, yeah. Um, and so this is the great hope that I have a father that I that I am adopted. I'm an adopted child of God, and that adoption the adoption was fully paid for by the blood of Jesus. Mm. So if I the the work part of recovery is a lot of focus on broken and hard things, which is necessary at the beginning. Mm -hmm. But Jesus is enough. And if that's not part of my daily mental discipline to come back to the finished work that's in Christ and that, that it's complete in me, I'm just not experiencing that completeness yet. Yeah. So I want to move towards that, which already (sighs) is. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, If I leave that out, then I will always end up back in self-help. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's only the person and work of Jesus that keeps me from self-help because he's done the work. Yeah. And now I'm just trying to participate in that abundant life that's already been given to me. Yeah. So I, I don't know how, you know, some, some people have friends or churches or groups that are great for reminding them of that, yeah. um, and some of you listening don't, and so you've got to find a way to return to that as often as you return to thinking about your recovery yeah. and your struggles and sins, that yeah. that, can't, that can't be a more a consistent and present thought than the face of your Savior and the smiling love that's on your Abba's face.
0: Yeah, yeah. You know, here's here's another piece to Aaron about recovery. I got this great gift a few days ago from Jeff Schulte. He and I were talking at lunch, and I was talking about emotional— you know, I, I told him how I, I feel very much like an emotional retard or cripple, uh, and I envy people who seem to be— uh, you know More hooked up emotionally than I am And uh, Jeff said to me uh, Emotional health is not necessarily being able to Cry at the drop of a hat He said here's what emotional health is Emotional health Is being Present And alive where you are Um Uh, In early recovery, I was so desperate to get out of where I was, scrambling to get to this better place, um, that I didn't take the time and really at that point didn't have the tools or the help to actually be where I was. Um, And I do think that that part of that alone time that we spend in recovery, every day that those moments of solitude that are important. We don't do all of this together. There is some solitary work to be done. Uh, the guy, the recovery coach that I'm working with now, has me carrying a small notebook, and uh, he has had me put four uh, uh, four alarms on my phone to go off throughout the day. And the assignment is, whenever the alarm go off goes off, to stop, pull out the notebook. <laughs> center myself for a moment and then write down what I feel mm. just to be here It's it seems strange to me that at 61 years old and nearly 20 years into recovery I still need this kind of coaching and I'm tempted to feel shame because I don't know this
1: because <laughs> you don't just walk around in a constant state of emotional awareness and presence yeah
0: yeah 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 <laughs> yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. But, um, but I, I, uh, I love this discipline and it doesn't take more than just a couple of minutes. We're not, we're not talking about, you know, breaking out the books for a two hour studying session, talking about just being here. Yeah. That's
1: great. So I don't know if we answered poor Jeremy's question at all, uh, but that's that's a bunch of stuff so there that's you right. go <laughs> <laughs> all right uh, so so jason's question was what does reconciliation look like practically so we 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 understand the concept of reconciliation between god and others but especially when maybe trust has been broken mm-hmm. and there's a process of reconciliation uh You know, sometimes we want to get on with it, yeah. and the other person isn't on the same page or whatever. So what what comes to mind with his question, what does reconciliation look like practically?
0: Yeah. Well, I do think that, you know, the same principle holds when we're talking about reconciliation as when we talk about recovery and the healing of the brain. So we're not healing a body, we're not healing a brain, but we're healing a relationship. Mm -hmm. And that takes time. And um, what reconciliation doesn't look like is, uh, you know, this seamless healing in which there's no trace that the break was ever there. Mm. There will be a scar. Um, Allie carries scars to this day. Uh, The only difference is that at this point, you know, it really doesn't hurt that much to touch it. And... Those star- scars are beautiful in their way, and they are uh, they are what, what make us uh, unique and helpful and beautiful and, in, in a strange way, attractive to other people who know pain and want healing. We have the scars to prove that we've been through it. Mm-hmm. So um, I wish that those scars weren't there. I wish that Allie never had to have even a fleeting thought about whether or not uh, I'm telling her the truth. Now, she did reach a point where she finally said, I trust you. That took about five years in. But uh, she's not crazy. Um, uh, she's not naive. And although she doesn't obsess, she's not the sex police, she doesn't investigate from time to time, when she sees a worrisome sign, it's unsettling to her, and she wonders, and, and uh, some distrust comes back in. And sometimes for good reason, because I've begun to drift from good practice. Um, it's, it's a shame, in a way, that, um, that distrust that was not there when she met me at the front of the church. She trusted me 100% then. It's a shame it's there, but we're reconciled. Mm -hmm. Um, There are, I'm sure, psychic wounds that Allie carries and emotional wounds that she carries, Uh, many of which were inflicted before I arrived, but I came in and even made them worse. Um, uh, I will say, for example, that our intimate life at least for me, and I I know as well for Allie, is much better now than it was before because I was using her in those days uh of active addiction. She could have been anybody. Uh and uh and she certainly sensed that I was using her. That was not love making, that was lust driving sex, right? So now that we're able to make at least uh you know, from time to time a spiritual connection and I see her and she knows she's not being used, um, that's a much deeper and more satisfying experience than than anything we'd had before and certainly uh, than anything I ever paid for uh, because I spent years trying to buy what can only be given. She now gives to me. But um, there are still wounds there. So... The
1: the big thing you're saying is, especially for the person that has done the hurting, there has to be a lot of patience. Oh, yeah. And, and realizing that most people come to that confession moment with a spouse yeah. or a loved one after they've done a lot of processing, a lot of, you know, the journey's been ongoing, but this is day one for that. Spouse, other person, oh, yeah. spouse. So sometimes we might want them to be on day 580 like we are, yeah, but they're not, and no, no. so there's a long journey. And to have that compassion to suffer with them, mm-hmm. but also there's a piece in there, right? That I have to be very sure of who I am and where I am because. I can be compassionate without being drugged into possibly their anger or the shame that they want me to feel. Like I can—there's a fine line there, right? Yeah,
0: yeah, 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 yeah,
1: yeah. So what, what does that look like practically in reconciliation to accept what the other person is feeling without being dragged into inappropriate places of shame and condemnation?
0: Yeah, I think that's where I think our relationships with our brothers are crucial because they can help us uh, find and remember who we are. There's a great quote, and I forget who said it, one of the pioneers of uh, therapy who said, um, identity always precedes intimacy. Mm -hmm. So um, one of the reasons, you know, that we... we have this fractured relationship with a partner was that we were not able to securely attach and we had questions about our own identity connected with our own identity. Uh, so uh, so it's important that I have help because if I'm looking, if I'm not okay until she says, okay, I'm okay. Oh man, that's, first of all, that's putting a terrible burden on her. I keep asking her to tell me. I'm, I'm, I'm keep, I'm begging her for validation. I need her to. Oh man! At the same time, she's trying to recover from the bludgeoning that I inflicted right. on her.
1: You've got to know who you are in Christ. Oh
0: and- man
1: what yeah. that forgiveness is, regardless yeah. of your partner's ability to forgive. Right. It's,
0: I need to be able to bring that to the relationship rather than try to bring it, to draw it from the relationship. Right.
1: And that doesn't mean that you defend yourself to them with that. It is no. for your own heart stability. It's so funny. I'm thinking about uh, in First Samuel 21 and 22, you are describing David Mm-hmm. David gets afraid for the first time he reacts in fear and not mm-hmm. connection to his identity. Yeah. God has told him who he is. Nobody else really knows, but he's an anointed king. Yeah. But he gets afraid of Saul. That's where it starts. And then uh-huh. he he runs off to Nob to the tabernacle. Uh-huh. He lies to the high priest Ahimelech. Uh he takes he, he then runs again to Gath, to enemy territory. He gets afraid again of the king there, and he decides he has to act like a madman, and he literally is drooling in his beard because he thinks that'll keep him safe. And yeah. what, what I—two things happen. One, he's motivated by fear. Two, he's forgotten his identity. Mm. And so in the end, that high priest— Ends up getting killed by Saul. So his identity crisis and fear reactions only cause damage to the people around him. The collateral damage is huge. Right. And he's acting like literally a drooling madman because he's forgotten who God said he was. Oh, wow. Yeah. So I think this identity, the being secure, rooted, anchored in that... Man, you can weather a lot of emotional storms of other people struggling through their stuff if you are anchored to that. And man, do we need our our brothers to remind us. Yeah, We need the voice of the gospel coming from
0: the the body. Um, In answer to the question, what does reconciliation look like? I think one picture is this. Reconciliation is not that the pile of shit is gone. Reconciliation uh, is this: We're no longer on opposite sides of the pile of shit, trying to dig toward each other.
1: <laughs> this is quite a visual picture in my mind. Keep going
0: Okay, okay, but we are side by side, saying that sure is a pile of shit, and we're working to, we're working together on it. And we've given up blame, and we're allowing each other to hurt. And we're doing our best not to shame each other. And we're trying to remember who we are in Christ. And uh, we're being vulnerable. These are the parts I'm learning. (laughs) Mm. Uh, We're admitting our need. Uh, We're preaching to ourselves and not the other person. Uh, We're listening.
1: And we remember that a big pile of shit Can only be removed one shovel full at a time. At a
0: time, (laughs) exactly.
1: (laughs) And please don't try to remove it by eating the shit. That's right. (laughs) That only (laughs) results in more shit. (laughs) This is your metaphor,
0: Nate. I'm just trying to roll with it. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe I clean too many barns, uh, muck too many uh, stalls, and clean too many chicken coops. Uh, This is just the... (laughs) Uh, this is the image that comes to mind. I, I'm looking at the clock here, Aaron. We've been we've been visiting for an hour already. How did that happen?
1: Well, time is a construct that humans have <laughs> made. <laughs> oh, sorry. He <laughs> didn't mean that literally.
0: No, 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 no,
1: no. Yeah, we, we we have reached the end of our conversation, or else we'll just bore everybody.
0: Yeah. Uh...
1: But thank you to Jeremy and Jason for those questions. I I hope that was helpful for you guys and for other listeners. Um, We'd love to get more questions and hear from you. So if you end up in a virtual meeting with either of us, feel free to uh, have us jot one down. Or you can send them to us at...
0: At Podcast at gmail.com
1: Send it to us and let us know what you want us to talk about. What else do we need to know?
0: Uh can't think of anything else off the, off the bat. I'm heading out. Uh, Allie and I leave tomorrow on a 10-day road trip. It'll take us down through Alabama. I'm going to speak at a human trafficking summit there on Friday. Nice. And then some family time. And then uh, see toward the end of the month, I will be in St. Louis uh, for the Missouri Baptist Convention. And then in McCook, Nebraska, at the Free Evangel- Evangelical Church. And uh, let me see what else we got going.
1: Wow. You right. you got a busy schedule coming up. Yeah,
0: yeah. yeah. And then I'll be out in Chandler, Arizona, the beginning of the very beginning of March.
1: Oh, well, hey, I'll have to let our buddy Chris Simning that was on the show just a few episodes ago know because yeah. he lives right there.
0: Okay. All right. Hey, I'd love to meet up with him while we're down there. All right. Well, this has been a, a great conversation. It pains me that it's been—has it been three weeks since we— recorded our last one or has it been a month when was the last time when we i think had joe i think
1: three well no we we've done a couple we did joe beam after that but it's been yeah. a, it's been a few weeks so
0: yeah well you know as samson house gets uh, better established here as uh, our our schedules can get more stabilized and finances can get more stabilized we'll be able to do this on a more regular basis i look forward to that indeed yeah all right well i love you aaron and uh grateful for all the uh devoted listeners to the podcast. Until next time, I won't say until next week, but I'll say until next time, I'm Nate. I'm Aaron. We are your pals on the Pirate Monk Podcast. (laughs)